Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome, hello, and welcome to show 424. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is, as I say, fine and dandy. We have a great little show for you today. I'll tell you what's coming in. First up, I'm talking to Zach Wilson, who, one for a better (laughs) description, has spent eight months on Mars. Yes, Zach actually was part of a NASA experiment funded project, and it's still ongoing, where they're actually living the, the kind of Martian environment. Zach's done his little bit and he was kind enough to come out and have a little to come out. He's, he finished a couple of years ago, but to come over and have a chat about his experiments and, you know, his living kind of on the, you know, if you were kind of going to live on Mars, this is how you would have to do it. So it's a great little insight into kind of, you know, how people would, you know, in the future survive on Mars for a long time, potatoes and everything. <laughs> Then we've got the main fiction, which is First and Third by Vaughan Stanger. Then right at the end, we have Mr. J.J. Campanella with his science news at his, because it's February and it's the end of the month. So what a great little show. I hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So like I say, first up is an interview I carried out with Zach Wilson, who, you know, has has kind of tried it to the best of our ability, man's ability, do you know what I mean, to kind of put someone on Mars. We need to kind of find out how people interact and everything, you know what I mean? And Zach is part of this actually ongoing experiment. So I'm going to jump straight into this interview there now. Zach, if you don't mind, bring us up to speed. What was this almost Mars? I was part of a study called High Seas, which stands for Hawaii Space Exploration Analog and Simulation. Um, And it's run by Dr. Kim Binstead, who's a professor at the University of Hawaii. Um, And basically, she's looking at how do you pick a crew to go to Mars? What kind of people do you want to have? And how do you make sure that they're going to get along and, and work well together over the course of a a Mars mission, which is going to take a couple years. Um, so the funding comes from NASA, and she's working with a whole bunch of other professors at various universities and other groups to, to study uh, this, these groups of people that go through these simulations. How did you come to hear about this experiment then, and how did you eventually get, you know, get yourself picked? Um, so it started sort of in 2009. I was browsing the internet, and I stumbled on this blog that was 
just some, some guy I didn't know at the time. And he was posting that they were looking for people to do this Mars simulation in Utah. Um, it was run by a group called the Mars Society. It was a, a two-week stay at this habitat in sort of in the desert in Utah. And I was uh, just finishing up my master's degree and didn't really have anything else that I was planning on doing. I thought, oh, that sounds kind of interesting. Uh, <laughs> I've been interested in space for years and years and thought, hey, this is a, a cool thing and I don't really have any commitments, so I can I can go do this. So I, I did that in November of 2009, and that sort of got me on the list of people that are interested in that sort of thing. Um, and so then when Kim was looking for applicants for her new mission, she emailed a bunch of the alumni from, from that project. Um, and so I applied then, um, and I, I didn't make the, the first crew, um, and then I was busy for the second crew. Uh, but when the third mission rolled around, they, I got a sort of, I got picked for the, the first round of interviews and stuff like that. And then the process is basically uh, sort of like a job application that you start with your resume, then do a Skype interview. Uh, then there was an online personality test. Um, and then once they had nine people picked, they sent all of us on a week-long backpacking trip in Wyoming to sort of see how we interacted with each other and how we got along. Um, and then they picked six of us from those nine and I was one of them, which was super fun. It must have been, you know, like the, the day you got picked, it must have been just such a, a almost surreal moment to realize what you, you know, for your next few months are going to be like. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I quit my job and that was, I mean, it's a, it was a, a big commitment to, to move to Hawaii for eight months um, and sort of yeah, have this very unusual lifestyle. Um, it was it was definitely a strange realization that I'm about to sort of leave the real world behind. Did they make it then as realistic as possible for you? I mean, were you really cut off from everything? Um, they do everything reasonable to make it as realistic as possible. I mean, so obviously the gravity is still normal. There's still air outside. Um, but th they do everything they can. I mean, so the... You don't have access to the internet except for a few sites that you've had whitelisted. The vast majority of the internet is blocked. Anything that, that updates frequently on the internet is, is going to be blocked. Uh, so you can't go and read the news on the internet. Email, they have special email set up that has a 20-minute delay each direction. So if I send an email out, that person's not going to get it for 20 minutes. Um, and then when I get an email back, it gets delayed 20 minutes again to simulate that the time that it's going to take for a signal to travel from Mars to Earth. All the, f the food we ate was freeze-dried and shelf-stable. It would have to be on a real Mars mission. Every time you go outside, you put on a, a simulated spacesuit. So they, they do a pretty good job of, of keeping it as realistic as possible. I'm just wondering, what, you know, see, they've got you there in this kind of little kind of habitat. Did they have, were they... Next to you, see, in a base camp station, do you know what I mean? Monitoring you, like, see, over the hill, sort of sort of a scenario. They have some video cameras. 
um, that they're using for some of the studies, but nobody's sitting there watching you. And the, the habitat itself is on the side of Mount Aloha in the middle of nowhere. Um, so it's, it's miles and miles away from any other people. So when you look out the window, you just see lava fields. It's, it's really desolate, beautiful, but yeah, but stark. It really just must look, you know what I mean? For as best we can do on earth, you know, it must just look like the Mars and the Mars horizon. Yeah, it's, uh, I think they, they picked a good spot. And so comparing it to the, the one in Utah that I did, it's maybe, you don't see quite the same lava fields on the pictures of Mars that, that we saw at our window. Um, but it's, uh, it's a, it's a good location that they found. I'm interested then, Zach, what would happen, you know, yes, you know, to some degree, you know, if you get ill, you've got to be taken out, but how far would the, we just prepared to kind of suck it and see with it, like you say, an illness, like you say, a cold or a flu, you know, would you kind of, did you see it out or the first kind of any little illness where you're like, right, get me out of here. I've got a few. Um, so interestingly, nobody got sick the entire time because right? there's nobody there's, we don't have any contact with anybody, so we're not exposed to any, any colds and stuff like that. Um, I know that's not the, the point of the question, but I thought that was kind of an interesting thing. It is, I oh, right, definitely. I never even thought of that, to be quite honest. Yeah. So that was super nice, not getting sick the whole time. <laughs> but, I mean, people had little, like, muscle strains and stuff like that, um, because we were working out a lot. And, yeah, I mean, that we all stuck with it. I think we had a, a doctor sort of on call that if if something big came up, they were prepared to to deal with that. But uh, leaving the habitat would have meant um, that you wouldn't be coming back. So anything that was serious, I mean, you sort of weigh the the I need to get this taken care of against. Uh, I really want to finish this mission, and uh, yeah, so it was it was sort of a, a serious thing you had to think about if if you. If there was a problem, how far were you prepared to to go to stay there? Wow, hey, that is that is a, you know what I mean a kind of a little bit of pressure on yourself because the, all you do want to do is stay there. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you know you don't want to come away, but you know how how much do you kind of you, you take it to the limit? You think, listen, I've got to go. This back of mine's killing us. Zach, do us a favor and describe because am I right in thinking you were there for about eight months? Yes. Des- uh, describe your habitat then. What I mean. Eight months, and do you say six years living in this like little igloo shape building? Is it? Yes. Um, so it's a, a geodesic dome. It's yeah, like I said, on the, the side of Mount Aloha at about eight thousand feet. Um, so it's and there's there's no plants, pretty much no animals outside. Um, and then the the dome itself is about uh, fourteen hundred square feet on two levels, sort of a main kitchen, living room, um, multi-purpose area. And then upstairs is six closet-sized bedrooms. They're just big enough for a, a tiny little single bed and a tiny little desk um, and enough space to store your your stuff. A couple bathrooms uh, with composting toilets, um, a little biology chemistry lab, and then a uh, shipping container as a, as a pantry and food storage uh, and workshop area. Um, so it's a pretty a pretty small area, but it's 
it's fairly well set up. So it's actually, it doesn't feel super cramped. The ceilings are really high in the, in the main living area because uh, the, the bedrooms are sort of set back in a loft type setup. Um, so it doesn't, it didn't feel claustrophobic uh, to me at least. One of the problems is there's only two tiny little porthole windows. Um, so you don't get much sun, which was certainly something I really enjoyed when I got out was feeling the sun on your face again. But you would have had to put on the full gear to, to go outside. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So we had a few different kinds of simulated spacesuits. Most of them were uh, just sort of these plastic hazmat suits. Uh, but they do a really good job at isolating you uh, from the outside so you don't feel any wind. Uh, you can't really talk to each other except using the radios, and that's basically what they're looking for. Um, it's very cumbersome to walk around in them. You can't really see where you're going, so you have to walk really slowly so you don't trip. And then we also had a couple of uh, simulated spacesuits from the University of Maryland um, that are sort of that better approximate what an actual spacesuit is like. Uh, so they have the, the bubble helmet and that kind of thing. What was it like for you then? Or what was the, the biggest issue for you, Zach? Was it, the, say, the physical issues or was it the mental issues? You know, like just say being isolated for eight months or just, you know, see, I guess you were training each day. Was, what, what was the hardest thing for you personally? So I think it, it was interesting that the, the things I kind of expected to be hard weren't weren't so bad the uh it's like being away from friends and family was tough not being able to talk to them on the phone but had that before living in other other countries or whatever so that was okay and and in some ways i talked to some people maybe more than i would have living at home just because sort of need something to do and so that that turned out okay the the food i thought was going to be either not very good or just sort of boring or that would be hard. Um, but the food turned out pretty good. The Everybody was a pretty good cook. And then we, we alternated, we took turns cooking. Um, so you only had to cook one dinner a week. And when you only have to cook one dinner a week, really willing to spend quite a bit of time making it good. Um, and so we did, we all sort of tried to outdo each other on <laughs> These pretty elaborate meals. So I ate just as well or better than I did in the real world. I mean, no no fresh vegetables and stuff like that. Um, but in terms of variety and things like that, I've tried more kinds of things than I do normally. The stuff that was hard that I hadn't really thought about, yeah, the, the social aspect of it is, is hard. Uh, only seeing these five other people and seeing them all day, every day. It's a, a strange situation. I mean, so I'd never, I'd never met these people before the, the backpacking trip we went on. So when we went in the dome, I spent a week with them there. And then before the mission started, we'd had a week of geology training uh, in Hawaii. So these were people that I knew, but certainly weren't people that I would really call friends at that point. I mean, so I'd, I'd spent less than two weeks with them. And now I'm with them 24 seven for eight months. Um, so that's a, it's, that was a strange situation and that certainly had some difficulties. I was going to say there must've been some times where it just got, where you just wanted to kind of 
open that door and just walk out, you know what I mean, just to get away from, you know, never mind just having an argument with someone, just to get away from your own space. Yeah, so we we all had our own bedrooms, but they're really, I mean, so it's, it's enough space to go lay in bed and watch a movie, but there's not really, you don't want to spend much time in there just because it's so small. Um, but sometimes, I mean, that's your only space to really get away, so that's that's what you got to do. Yeah, it's it's weird not having not having privacy. Was there a time then, Zach, when it ever came to you where you thought enough is enough? No, I never really got to that point. I mean, it, things that were hard, but it was it was a really interesting and fun experience, also. So that this that stuff made up for the the points, the low points that were that were difficult. Yeah, I mean, getting to to spend every day pretending to be on Mars uh, was was super cool. Uh, so we uh, we were assigned some geology tasks. So we'd go out and uh, measure rock formations and stuff like that, um, like real astronauts would do. Uh, everybody brought their own research projects uh, just because they're, they want to keep us busy like astronauts would be. And you get to pick your own. And so the one I brought was a 3d printer that 3D printing is something that could be useful when you go to Mars because you can't just run off to the hardware store and get some some replacement parts. You need to be able to either improvise a fix or have extra replacement parts around or to be able to make your own. And so I 3D printed, a, designed and 3D printed a whole bunch of stuff uh, to try to make our lives easier. And that was something that I'd been interested in but never really had the opportunity to to play around with more than a little bit. And so to have all this time where that's really my job is just to, to sit around and learn about 3D printing was it was a pretty cool opportunity. You know, you're on about the printing and things, you know, you've got to fix them. Did things start to fall apart? Maybe the, the minute you, you entered this building or this like this kind of environment and then you thought, oh, or did, did it just everything work and everything go plain sailing for the eight months? It's pretty well built. They did a good job putting it together, um, but there's definitely some some stuff that was not working quite right. So I was the the chief engineer, so I was in charge of all that kind of stuff. We there was a fair number of problems with the the IT system uh, because they have this the block put up for the internet and then the delayed email. It's sort of a a bizarre setup. So there was some problems with that intermittently. Um, so I was working with the, we had an IT guy at NASA that was sort of running things on the outside. Uh, and so I had to, to deal with him a fair bit to sort of troubleshoot on our end. The power systems, there's a, a big solar array that charges batteries. It's, it's totally off the grid. Uh, and then there's a hydrogen fuel cell as a backup. Uh, and there was some, some issues with all of those things, um, batteries not charging or the fuel cell not working. And it's really important that the there always be power because they're also collecting lots of biological samples. And so those are in a, in a freezer. And if that freezer goes off, those samples are going to be ruined. Uh, so you really, you can't run out of power. That's, it's going to be really bad if that happens. Just like on a real Mars mission, if you run out of power, you're going to die. So that, that's a sort of realistic thing to add to the simulation is that having power all the time is really important. You know, you, you talked 
little bit ago about your food. So it was all, am I right in thinking, all your food was there ready for you? Nothing else was brought in? Whatever, whatever, when you shut that door that first day, that was it? You had no more food brought in for you? Uh, no. So they did a, a food resupply every two months. So there was three of those over the course of the mission. Right, right. Um, and that's sort of for two reasons. One, there's not enough storage space at the habitat to store all the food. And the second reason is that because really what they're looking at here is the group dynamics and psychological aspects, having to bring in food doesn't really, doesn't really harm those goals. And they're not really, they don't have the the logistics set up to sort of know all the the food that you're going to need for that eight months. That's something they're, they're learning on this mission, uh, but they're not really there yet to say, okay, we know exactly what you guys are going to eat for this whole eight months. So after two months, they bring in a bunch more of the, the stuff that we actually ate because there's, there's stuff that, okay, maybe the previous crews really liked these things, uh, but this crew doesn't like it. So they don't want to bring in more of the stuff we didn't eat. Yeah. Whenever they, they drop food off, uh, we don't actually see the people. They just leave it. Um, and then we go get it and put it back in the, in the pantry. So yeah, that was, a few resupplies over the course of the mission. You know, talking again about your, your kind of mental state over this time, did it? Did you notice anything yourself? Did it change? You know, like, you must have been, as soon as you walked in, you know, like, as high as kites, you know, euphoria. But then it must have just kind of, did it wane in the middle and then pick up again or anything like that? That's something, that's exactly what they're looking at, is how does how does that change over time? The sort of prediction or the, the model that is often discussed is third quarter syndrome, uh, that the third quarter of any mission is sort of, is the low point. The excitement of being there has sort of worn off and that the, you're not, you're not looking at the end quite so much at that point. Um, and I think for me, that was somewhat accurate. Maybe, um, I, I think the, my worst bit was sort of, after it'd been there for five months, maybe a little, a little less than three quarters of the way through was sort of when I was like, uh, this is, this is a long time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's exactly what they're looking at. And they're, they're doing this, this grant they got is for a set of three missions, a four month an eight month and a 12 month. And so they're, they're looking at whether it's really the third quarter or is it some, absolute amount of time when is the the low point for the mission and when are aren't the isn't the crew working well together um when are people having a hard time that kind of thing well come on then zach spill the beans and was there any rifts amongst the crew or was there any relationships blossomed amongst the crew because it's you're eight months in there surely something like that's gonna happen friendships sort of blossomed and waned as as <laughs> we got to to know each other and stuff like that no, I mean, I, we, we worked really well together the whole time. The, it, it, I was pretty impressed with the job they did picking us. It, I think some of it was probably just luck. They, they picked a group that worked really well together. I expected more drama than there was um, going in. I thought, yeah, this is going to be, there's going to be something that isn't, uh, isn't good, but no, it was it was good. I was yeah, pleasantly surprised. What happened then on you once you you finished your experiment? You know, 
eight months is over, do they, do they take you in and kind of debrief you all? Or are you just left, you know, in a hotel room for a couple of days by yourself? So they had a three days of debriefing interviews. Uh, so they would come out and, uh, yes, yeah, so a bunch of the, the researchers come out that had various studies that we were doing for them. They debriefed us as individuals and as a group about how things went um, and how things can be improved for the, the next mission. Um, so they, yeah, they hopefully got all the, all, all the useful information they can out of us. What was it like for you then, Zach, leaving it for that, you know, um, I, I'm guessing you, you're not going back to do the 12 month one. That's probably passed as well, has it? I'm just wondering what was uh, it like for you just walking out that door for the last time? So the, the 12 month one is going on right now, actually. Wow. But yeah, walking out that door for the first time in eight months without a spacesuit on, pretty strange. Uh, feel the wind on your face for the first time in eight months. Uh, and then there was 50 people standing outside because they, they invited a bunch of media people uh, and some of our families came. They had a big buffet table set up for us. Uh, and then we also did a skydive that day with the the Army uh, skydiving team, the Golden Knights. Uh, so they came and picked us up in a helicopter from the side of the mountain, and we did a skydive as sort of simulated re-entry. <laughs> Just to kind of rub it in there a little bit more for you. Wow, man, you're like Earth heroes there, sir. It's pretty cool. I, I was going to say, you know, like, are you involved with it, you know, ongoing now, you know, with this kind of 12 month one? Do you kind of keep in touch with who's running it or, or is that, are you just kind of now finished on this project? Um, so I'm working as a mission support member now for this 12 month mission. Uh, so for my mission as well, we had a mission support team. Uh, it's about 40 people, I think. Um, and there's, a mission support person on 12 hours a day uh, during the week and eight hours a day during the weekend. So that's somebody that's there because you don't have access to the internet. You can't make phone calls. Those people are there to sort of help facilitate anything that the crew needs. Um, so if you send them the daily news or if they're having issues with some logistical thing, sort of in the outside world, approving their EVAs and um, taking back their geology reports, stuff like that. I'm still involved with that once a week. Uh, I have a, a shift for four hours where I sit and answer emails from them and stuff like that. And it's only emails, is it, Zach? There's no, like, verbal communications or anything like that going on? Because of the delay, you can't, you can't have a sort of normal conversation. Uh, we use this app called Voxer, which they set up with a 20-minute delay so you could send voice messages to people. But that's it's useful for sort of talking with friends and family, but it ends up being a little cumbersome um, when you're trying to communicate with mission support or something like that about a specific thing you need done. It's usually easier just to send an email because it's easier to reference um, when you're trying to do whatever that person is requesting is there anything then you know fundamental that they've learned from this 
these whole experiments? You know, what I, mean? I mean, was it a kind of like for like experiment where you could have took basically your whole little world and put it on Mars? Have they learned anything of that? Or unfortunately, none of the papers from this study have been published yet because it's this set of three missions and the twelve month one is still ongoing. Um, so the results are still pending, really. And basically, the researchers, when during our debrief, they don't want to tell us anything about how we did or sort of what they're learning, um, because they're still, they don't want us to, to taint the results for the next crew. Um, so it's, it's kind of weird because we're, yeah, we're just, we're just the study subjects. So they don't, they don't tell us what's going on necessarily. Uh, once this, 12-month mission finishes and they start putting out papers, I'll certainly be interested to see what they uh, what they say about us in those papers. Zach, could you keep any, say, like, personal mementos, like, say, could you take in, like, a camera and take photographs for your own personal memories, or was that all that not allowed? No, that's definitely allowed. Um, yeah, so I, I have thousands of photos that we all took together. We did, we did videos together. I have a bunch of the stuff that I 3D printed. So yeah, no, it definitely can take stuff out to, to sort of remember things. So the, the one last big question then, Zach, you know it's coming then. Would you go to Mars? I would definitely go. Oh, what a hero, man. Go from there. <laughs> Even after eight months of toil there. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I it definitely, it made me more interested, if anything. I, I'd be hesitant to do the, the one way trip on Mars one. Um, uh, that's I'd, the, that's I'd still the like big, to come yeah. back. Uh, that's the, <laughs> that's... But yeah, definitely. I would like to go. I think it'd be an amazing adventure. Zach, it's just like, it's, oh man, it's just brilliant to talk to you. Do you know what I mean? Just eight months in that kind of environment is a, a special thing. Well done, sir. Yeah. I, I hope it looks good on my astronaut application. <laughs> yes. Get it in there. Zach, it's been lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. There you go. I'll put some pictures on everywhere, do you know what I mean? On kind of Facebook and on the, on the website and everything. Come over and have a look, you know what I mean? Because, like, see, where they were staying, where Zach was staying, it is just, just looks like bloody Mars, man. Do you know what I mean? Zach. What a hero, what a guy. Thank you so much for coming on and just giving a little bit of insight into that kind of life that you did. And, you know, like I say, and it's still going on. There's a kind of even longer one going on there now. So, wow, man, fantastic. Zach, thank you so much. So next up is the main fiction, and it is called First and Third by Vaughn Stanger, which originally appeared in Postscripts 26 and 27, Formerly an astronomer and more recently a research project manager in an aerospace company, Vaughn Stanger now writes science fiction and fantasy for a living. His stories have appeared in daily science fiction, end of eon, postscripts, natures, futures and interzone, amongst others, noted magazines and anthologies. You can follow him at vaughnstanger.com. This is just an awesome story. Little Mars theme there as well. Running through, running through the show. This story is narrated by Nicole Doolin. 
Nicole is a writer and voice actor. Her fiction, poetry and plays have been published and presented and her voice has appeared in various mediums. Nicole has performed numerous narrations for a number of popular and award-winning podcasts such as the amazing No Sleep podcast, a one called Farfetched Fables and a little one called Tales to Terrify. She also narrates classic literature in her own podcast, Audio Literature Odyssey. To learn more about Nicole... You can visit our website as well, and there's a link on to that, NicoleDoolin.com. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. First and Third by Vaughn Stanger, narrated by Nicole Doolin. The Martian twilight had deepened to the point where Joe Engels no longer trusted himself to keep his Norton warmonger on the blacktop. Just a little further, he told himself. And sure enough, two clicks down the road, the bike's headlight beam picked out a billboard. As he eased the fat, tired, nuclear-powered machine to a halt, he thanked the gods of corporate irrationality for installing a public portal in the middle of nowhere. Three years into her post-life, Maisie still insisted on a view of the physical world, not merely his ugly face. Calling her from a hacked motel vid phone was a no-no, even at night. After unpacking the Norton's panniers, Joe set his camping dome to inflate and then switched the bike's stealth field generator to wide area mode. Can't be too careful, he told himself, even though the risk of being spied on by a satellite was minimal. While gazing at the purpling sky, Joe noticed a point of light moving so fast it couldn't be Phobos or Deimos. Suddenly it flared like a nova, so bright and look at that, and gone on the count of ten. Despite having retired from the jacking game, Joe continued to count seconds like they meant the difference between life and death. Possibly one of Maisie's fellow post-lifers had just made the grade, although why anyone wanted to pilot a robotic spacecraft on a mission lasting millennia baffled him. Maisie herself stood no chance of graduating from Ad Astra. But that wasn't why he'd placed her there. Joe shivered inside his Mars suit. His conversation with Maisie would be annoyingly brief as the temperature would soon dip to minus fifty. Downright balmy, according to older colonists, but too cold for him to remain outside the dome for long. Joe bounced, come waddled over to the billboard, taking care to avoid the omnipresent pits and boulders. As he drew near, a quartet of solar-powered floodlights illuminated him. Twin surveillance cameras mounted on the top of the unit twitched, converging their gaze on him. Maisie flashed up on the screen her technicolor dreadlocks and ebony skin flawlessly rendered in 3D. Seeing her plump, ruby lips caught mid-pout made Joe's heart flutter. Then he saw the ribbon of text running beneath her unmoving face, and his mood turned to despair. Maisie says, hello. Evidently, Acme Afterlife, Inc. had downgraded Maisie to their cheapest policy again, their way of telling Joe to pay up or else. In truth, he'd not stopped paying up these past three years. Moving Maisie to Acme's Ad Astra domain had been a worryingly expensive attempt to keep her safe from prying eyes. Ha, honey, he said, trying not to sound anxious. Maisie asks, why are you late? So stilted, so polite, so not like Maisie. Joe sighed. My back broke down. He'd wasted two hours fixing the out-of-whack gyros which explained why he'd ended up camping 100 clicks short of Valis Midway. Maisie says, That is what happens if you buy a second-hand motorcycle instead of stealing a new one. I'm doing my best, honey. 
Maisie says, Your best is not good enough. I've got a maintenance job booked for tomorrow. Maisie didn't have to say what she thought of that. The triplet of exclamation marks sufficed. The money's not so bad, he added. Maisie asks, Will it pay for her upgrade to first? Yes, honey. He didn't dare add that it would last a week at most. Maisie says, Then you should get on with it. Seeing Maisie's favorite phrase made Joe smile, but before he could respond, the Acme logo erased her image. Joe waddled back to the dome, cursing under his breath. Talking to Maisie in third sucked worse than a hole in a pressure suit. The pressure readout on the dome's external panel registered 75% of Earth's normal, which was the best Joe could expect from this much-patched example of surveyor's equipment. Once through the airlock, he took off his helmet, wriggled his nose at the chemical tang produced by the CO2 scrubbers, and began unpacking his belongings. Later he sat on his bedroll, slurping lukewarm tomato soup, and occasionally remembering to wipe his beard. Since Maisie's death, there had been no one to scold him about his sloppy manners, no one to share life on the road. Born within a day's horse ride of the Grand Canyon, Maisie would have loved Vallis Marinaris. Speeding along the highway that afternoon, the terraced features of the colossal rift valley had reminded him of folded blankets and bedtime with Maisie. Tears pricked his eyes. Get on with it, he whispered. The wide-eyed look Joe received from his client's departing customer made him feel uneasy, but on entering the boudoir he saw nothing unusual. The transparent waterbed and pink fur carpet were standard issue, likewise the cleansing cubicle and walk-in closet, which presumably housed the usual outfits and appliances. Then he spotted the boudoir's occupant and instantly revised his opinion. There was no mistaking that combo of sculpted crimson hairdo, voluptuous physique, and doll-like face. He hadn't seen a Lyra in years. Indeed, had hoped never to do so again. Given the circumstances of Maisie's death, who could blame him? None of which made it any less strange that this example had avoided the remodeling shop. After all, the vogue for replicating mid-21st-century pop stars which had briefly swamped the market with facsimiles of Lyra Bellini and her peers, was long past. Joe glanced at the bot's naked backside and gave an involuntary shudder. Oh, just get on with it, he said to himself. According to the pimp who had phoned in the service request, a terrified customer had reported a seizure. Joe selected a scanner from his toolkit and ran the usual diagnostics. The Lyra's neural parameters showed green across the board. He shrugged and rebooted the bot. Easy money. When the Lyra reawakened, he held out his pad. That'll be five hundred credits. The scarcity of bot engineers on Mars accounted for the outrageous price. That and Acme's payment plan. The Lyra pouted so provocatively she made Maisie look innocent. How about payment in kind? Uh-oh, Joe said under his breath. No way would he trade credits for quickies. Doing it with a probot would be a no-no even if Maisie didn't need the money. In any case, he wasn't about to let the pimper an egg on the deal. Joe snatched a neural baseliner from his toolbox and held the tip of the pen-shaped device under the Lyra's nose. Five hundred credits right now. Rush of this up your left nostril. The new baser no longer worked, but the bot didn't know that. The Lyra gaped at Joe, apparently startled into silence by his threat. Then a nasal voice brayed forth.
the pimp on override. Guess you must really need the money. What with you waving that highly illegal piece of kit around? Joe lowered the new baser. The pimp continued. That's better. Shall we say fifty? Joe folded his arms and gave the bot his sternest look, hoping that bravado might carry the day. Payment in full or I report this establishment. The Lyra tilted its head to one side. Oh, I reckon the authorities would be a whole lot more interested in any report I might file on you than any jacking, bud. Joe heard a snigger. The Martian police were reliably ineffectual, but the pimp evidently recognized that Joe dared not take the risk. A thirty-stretch and series jail would put an end to his money problems once and for all, and put an end to Maisie, too. Okay, he sighed. Fifty it is. And there I was, thinking we'd settled on twenty-five. Joe acquiesced before the price could fall further. The Lyra winked at him. You're my kind of guy. Cursing his luck, Joe snatched up his toolkit and waddled into the corridor, where he bumped into the Lyra's next customer. Good luck in there, he snarled. Standing outside the brothel under the milky blue sky, Joe contemplated Midway's main drag, with its motley collection of Mars-suited miners and dust-streaked robotrucks. For all new Mars Inc.'s boasts of self-maintaining highways and a thickening atmosphere, mankind's second home looked jaded already. Cursing his luck, Joe settled onto the Norton, gunned the engine, and rode out of town, vowing never to return. As Joe neared the first billboard beyond Midway, he steered the Norton off the road, throwing rooster tails of dust into the skinny air and provoking a fusillade of flashes from a passing ore truck. As if on cue, Maisie appeared. Despite her scowling expression, Joe risked a smile. He might not be forgiven, but at least Maisie was back in first. How's my favorite space cadet? A growl came over his headphones. Oh, just dandy. What's up, honey? Maisie rolled her eyes. Post life is frickin' hard work, Joe, in case you hadn't noticed. Honey. And it's harder still when I'm stuck in third. He held out his gloved hands in a gesture of apology. I'm transferring every credit I make into your account. But bot maintenance don't pay so good particularly in the less respectable sectors of the Martian economy. Maisie scowled at him. Bot maintenance. Next you'll be trying out for a desk job. We used to make money from jacking. What's stopping you now? What had happened to Maisie in Tucson was Joe's reason, but he knew better than to remind her. Honey, he groaned, I can't turn back the clock. If only he said to himself. The five years they'd spent roaming the sun-baked towns of the American West, jacking bots and putting them to work stealing titanium, copper, and selenium had been the happiest of his life, dubbed the new Bonnie and Clyde by the more sensationalist news feeds they had worked hard to live up to their forerunner's reputation. Now Joe found himself working no less hard, if considerably less violently to ensure Maisie's continuing presence on Ad Astra. She nodded as if she'd read his mind. Time of our lives, wasn't it? 
Yeah, I sure miss it. Suddenly, Maisie's eyes blazed. Not half as much as you'll miss me if my account hits zero. Joe sighed. I'm doing everything I can. As usual, Maisie had some ideas on that score. Why don't you sell your new baser? It's no use if you're not jacking bots. And what about that set of Q-chips you keep in your toolbox? Joe dismissed her advice with a shake of his head. No way would he ever sell his tools. Exasperated by her attitude, he turned away and gazed at the sky. Maisie's laughter rang in his ears. Well, I'm sure as shit not heading up there, sweetheart. Heaven knows why you chose Starship Pilot School for me. We both know I ain't ever gonna make Rapture. Which was surely true, thought Joe, but that wasn't why he'd placed Maisie there. Honey, I chose that Astra because it's the last place the authorities would think to look for you. You know that. But Maisie wasn't listening. Plus, this is the most boring post-life yet. It's like being back at college, with lectures and lab classes and all, but without the sex, drugs, and all-night parties. She rolled her eyes. There's not even any shopping. Joe shook his head in dismay. Ad Astra might lack opportunities for retail therapy, but Acme's industry-leading privacy policy more than made up for it. Honey, you're missing the point. And then imagine not being able to gossip with your fellow post-lifers because some tatwad hasn't paid the frickin' bill. Honey, that's not fair. Life ain't fair, sweetheart. Post-life even less so. He let her rant on, knowing that if their positions were reversed, he'd need an outlet too. The sigh that ended her tirade made him shiver. Sweetheart, she said, her voice suddenly husky. I miss you so bad. I miss you too, honey. He wanted so desperately to hug her. I wish I could make post-life better for you. Oh, don't fret, she scolded. Had Astor ain't so bad. We do have some fun, but this is not what you'd call a comfortable post-life. Lately, we've had some disappearances. A series of increasingly loud beeps came over Joe's headphones. Honey, he said, I think you'd better take Johnny Gleason, for example. Well, something did. I heard he was flush with money, but... Maisie's face froze with her mouth wide open. On the count of five, a line of text began crawling beneath her static image. Maisie says, please send more money. Yes, honey. Feeling too numb to say anything more, Joe climbed onto his Norton. Somehow he'd make enough money to get Maisie reinstated in first. Rapture might be hopelessly out of reach, but he'd do right by her. And if the credits ever did run out, he'd not outlive her by more than a few seconds. Opening his helmet to the Martian sky might not seem worthy of the new Bonnie and Clyde, but he'd do it all the same. In life as in death, there was no escaping Maisie. A hundred clicks east of Midway, Joe hustled the Norton through one of Vallis Highway's sweeping bends while singing along to Born to be Wild. He loved the raw power of 20th century rock, however archaic it sounded to everybody else, including Maisie. He had just argued himself out of resuming his jacking career when an incoming call silenced the music. His head-up display presented the ID of the Lyra from Midway. He dismissed the call with a snarled expletive. Two bends later, the trilling resumed. Despite his misgivings, he took the call. Mr. Engels, I need your help. 
The probot's voice sounded odd, not at all like a Lyra. Why had its slime ball of a pimp revoiced it now? Joe frowned as he eased off the throttle. I repair obsolete bots on a reasonable efforts basis, he said, trying to keep his tone businesslike. If you read the contract's small print, you find there's no guarantee. As the Norton rolled to a halt, he realized that something besides the bot's anomalous voice was making his brain itch. Why aren't I talking to your pimp? The bot ignored his question. Please, it begged. You must get me out of here. This unexpected plea flummoxed Joe. Rescuing a probot would surely prove futile, for where else could it work except in a brothel? Still, its display of emotion had piqued his curiosity. According to Maisie, bots didn't feel much of anything. Get you out of where, exactly? The Lyra didn't answer immediately. Instead, Joe heard two new voices over the link, neither of which sounded like the bot, nor indeed its pimp. He tongued the volume control higher, but still couldn't make out what was being said. Sensing a possible threat, he decided to press on rather than concern himself with his bot's problem. Look, I'm on a call, so I can make it worth your while, said the bot. Is five thousand credits enough? Joe gasped. Where had the bot got that kind of money? If from the pimp, well, that begged a mighty big question. Still, he'd gladly run back to Midway for such a sizable payday. Assuming, of course, this wasn't another con. Half up front, he replied. Ha! Why should I trust you not to ride off with the money? Despite the bot nixing his spur-of-the-moment plan, he still needed something up front for Maisie's sake, just in case he couldn't complete the job. A week's worth of first would do. Five hundred or you find someone else. He counted to twenty before the bot replied with a reluctant sounding, Okay. Presumably it had tried but failed to find an alternative supplier of maintenance services. Then we have a deal, he said, sounding calmer than he felt. In this business, an advance was rarer than a Martian barbecue. As soon as I receive confirmation of your payment, I'll head straight back. Accepting a stop-off to tell Maisie the good news. Joe had expected to see Maisie smile when he walked up to the billboard, whereas the way her eyes darted reminded him of a mouse looking out for a cat. Instinct made him look over his shoulder. He saw dust settling on the blacktop, nothing more. What's up, honey? We've got a reaper and Ad Astra. Maisie sounded as worried as she looked. Joe held up his gloved hands in a calming gesture. Honey, your money worries are over. I've just been paid in advance, which is why you're back in first. And when I complete this job, you'll be safe from downgrading for months. Never mind, deletion. Maisie gave Joe a look that reminded him of every jacking that had gone wrong. There had been a few. I don't mean deletion, she snapped. I've seen what happens when the money runs out. Blink and you'd miss it. She paused as if recalling the demise of a fellow post-lifer. No, I hear this thing is real gradual, like it's wiping your mind one terabyte at a time. Maisie's description made no sense to Joe. What else could this reaper be except Ad Astra's deletion process? The cops that had hounded Maisie out of her previous domains were tangible presences, as required by post-life law. Have you actually seen this reaper? Maisie rolled her eyes. Of course not. 
Cause if I had, I'd be dead and you'd be talking to the Acme logo. Are you sure this isn't just Acme trying to keep you post-lifers honest? Make rapture or you meet the reaper? That kind of thing? Maisie shook her head. Why would they bother? Most of us are going nowhere, we know that. And Joe knew better than to argue the point. Maisie continued, Anyway, this isn't the first time. There was a story doing the rounds just before you moved me on from Mall of Light. I didn't tell you because I figured it for a post-life myth, but after I emerged from third this morning, I did some digging. Turns out this reaper appeared in Gates of Paradise, too, just before I got kicked out of there. And you think it might have done for Gleason? Worse than that, it's just wiped Sarah Klein. Who's she? Klein's next in line for rapture. Or rather, she was until she got sucked into oblivion by this thing. Okay, but that doesn't mean... Maisie's eyes glittered with panic. Gleason's not in my class, but Klein is. So now do you understand why I'm scared? Each time the reaper strikes, it's one step closer to me. Joe felt halfway to terror himself. What can I do? Unless you know of another domain to hide me in, not a frickin' thing. Maisie sounded defeated and with good reason. If Acme couldn't keep her safe, no other post-life service provider could. Joe smacked his hand into his fist. There must be something. Maisie shook her head. Just keep paying up until I either make rapture or... Her gloomy expression made it clear which outcome she expected. Maisie, honey, I... He bit down on the platitude. Judging by Maisie's jittery expression, something had just spooked her. Gotta fly, she said. The Acme logo erased her face. A corporate slogan taunted Joe with promises of the digital hereafter. Though tempted, he resisted the urge to throw rocks at the billboard. He might still need its facilities, assuming the Reaper hadn't found Maisie. Dismayed by his inability to help his beloved, Joe rode on into Midway. The door to the Lyra's boudoir stood slightly ajar. Joe pushed it open but hesitated on the threshold. He half expected to see the pimp's body, at least some telltale spots of blood amid the fur. The prospect of dealing with a rogue bot made him twitchy. He was on the point of backing out when the Lyra emerged from the closet. At least this time it was wearing clothes, the ubiquitous French maid's outfit. Please, it begged. You've got to get me out of here. Bemused by this request, Joe asked, Where's your pimp? Without warning, the bot grabbed his right arm. Joe knew better than to resist. For all its sex-kitten appearance, a Lyra easily surpassed him for strength. Oh, I scared him right out of town, it replied. The blood drained from his face. Never before had he felt scared of a bot, not even in Tucson. To his surprise, this one let go of his arm. Briefly, he considered following the pimp's example and hightailing it out of Midway, but he knew what Maisie would say to such financial dereliction. Instead, he took a deep breath to calm his nerves. Okay, he said, so now you're a free agent, but unless you've got a diagnosable fault, I don't see how I can help. The bot rolled its eyes. Free agent? What a laugh. How do you mean? The probot fell backwards onto the waterbed which quivered glutinously in the low gravity. To his surprise, it flashed a typical Lyra smile.
all gleaming teeth and baby blues, like he was just another customer. Wanna make waves with me, mister? Joe whistled relief. The liar's come-on might be laughably unsubtle, but it did represent normal behavior. And the voice sounded right, too. But what, he wondered, had caused this personality flip-flop? Let's stick to business, shall we? Oh, you're such a tease. Ignoring the mockery, Joe said, Okay, here's what we'll do. I'll run a deep scan. If I find out what's wrong and fix it, you pay me in full. There'll be no payment in kind or making waves or any other such nonsense. Got that? He received a compliant nod from the Lyra. Right then, Joe said, let's flip your lid. The Lyra obligingly tipped its head forward. Joe peeled away its crimson wig and pressed the stud on the back of its neck. Then he paused. Despite ten years of experience operating on bots, opening the skull still made him uneasy. His imagination conjured up a quivering lump of gray matter, just like in Maisie's favorite old movies. Not the cluster of Q-chips nestling within a web of sensor feeds that he actually found. Yet this familiar sight didn't make him feel any less anxious, because the prospect of performing a deep scan on a Lyra evoked all too vivid memories of Tucson. They had spent hours staking out a strip joint before finally snaring the Lyra. Maisie had just hooked up her cortical implant to its brain when her body jerked like she'd grabbed a live cable. Before Joe could react, she slumped to the ground unconscious. Fighting the urge to panic, he ran a deep scan and discovered that one of the bot's Q-chips had dumped a virus into Maisie's implant. Unable to pull her out of the mind link without leaving her brain dead, he bundled bot and beloved into his van and drove off. That evening, with police sirens dopplering closer and Maisie still inextricably bot-linked, he had bootstrapped her upload from backup to the cheapest PLSP. As soon as the transfer completed, he drove off into the Arizona night, leaving Maisie and her nemesis to their fate. The next ten months were the worst of his life. It wasn't until he disembarked in Port Lowell that he glimpsed Maisie again, scowling at him from a billboard. Joe shook his head. Get on with it, he told himself. After hooking up the last of the neural probes, Joe commenced the scan. Anything? The bot asked in its non-Lyra voice. Joe leaned back and stared at the bot. Possibly the deep scan had toggled between two competing personalities, the default Lyra and a God-knows-what. He double-checked the diagnostics but found nothing suspicious. Looks like I'll have to dig a bit deeper. Which meant he'd have to establish a direct mind link, thus replicating the very procedure that had fried Maisie's mind. You melt me when you're messing with my mind, the bot chanted. Oh, very funny, said Joe, recognizing a line from Lyra Bellini's most famous song. Now be quiet. Lacking Maisie's finesse, it took him almost an hour to configure the link. After muttering a prayer, he activated his own cortical implant for the first time since Maisie's death. To his astonishment, images from Tucson flashed into his mind, downright weird images too, considering that at no stage had he lain down on the parking lot, let alone looked up at a younger, mustachioed version of himself, who seemed to be leaning over him. No, over Maisie. No, over him. Then the truth dawned. Those were not his memories. Trembling with fear, Joe pulled free of the link. Gotta go.
he mumbled, backing away. He wanted nothing more to do with this deranged bot. Fifty thousand credits, it shrieked. Joe gaped at the bot, stunned by its extraordinary offer. How could he possibly turn down a payment that would keep Maisie in first for years? Yet the urge to flee remained strong. He was still dithering when the bot grabbed both of his arms and shook them hard. Please, you've got to. Get me out of here, Joe parroted. But how could anyone get the me out of a bot when its brain pan contains nothing but Q-chips and programming? He shook his head. Sorry, I don't understand. You're used to jack bots, right? Joe played for time. What of it? Well, this bot has gone and jacked me, which begged another mighty big question. This time he dared to ask it. So, who are you? I'm Sarah Klein. Joe gaped at the bot. Then he shook his head, dumbfounded by its declaration. Believing that a reaper had wiped Klein from Ad Astra was one thing, accepting that this bot now hosted her mental essence quite another. Sure, uploading a deceased person from backup had long ago become commonplace, but that was child's play compared with downloading a post-lifer into a bot. Joe had never heard of such a thing. That's impossible, he said, but observing the bot's tight-lipped expression made him immediately doubt his assertion. After all, why should it falsely claim to be Klein? That, too, seemed impossible, but he knew a way to test the claim. If you're really Sarah Klein, then you met Maisie Obermeyer, and sure as Acme makes money, she'll have told you how we met. Maisie could be relied to keep most secrets, but not that one. <laughs> the bot giggled. Not many men can claim to have been rescued by their future partner from a Kansas City brothel. He gave Klein a sour look. Okay, I guess you're for real, but I don't understand what you want me to do. I know you uploaded Maisie illegally, so I'm offering to reward you handsomely if you'll do the same for me. She held out a hand. Do we have a deal? Joe rubbed his chin while he pondered her request. Perhaps he could undo the Reaper's handiwork and earn a small fortune in the process, but why bother? Couldn't he just wait for the Reaper to download Maisie? Sooner or later it would catch up with Maisie, which would be bad luck on Klein, of course. Joe glanced at the probot and winced. Maisie would hate her new home, but given a choice between a futile, not to mention ruinously expensive, pursuit of rapture and a return, however compromised to the physical world, he knew which way she'd jump. To regain his beloved, all he had to do was wait. The five hundred credits Klein had already paid him ought to keep Maisie in first long enough for the reaper to harvest her. He shook his head. No, I don't think so. Klein's gaze narrowed. I thought you needed the money. Not anymore. Klein scowled at him, as if only now realizing her mistake. Then her frown turned to a smile so smug it nearly stopped Joe's heart. What had he forgotten? In that case, Mr. Engels, there are two things you should know. Firstly, she opened the bot's mouth wide. Joe heard an official-sounding voice. This time he could make out the man's words. Tracking. Vallis region. ETA Midway. Klein tilted her head to one side. Guess who recovered the spot after you abandoned it in Tucson? Evidently the cops were onto him, though not yet sure of his location. But if they could pinpoint him, they'd surely have no qualms about using a little preemptive EMP, which would fry his bike's stealth field generator, not to mention the probot.
So waiting for Maisie to download wasn't an option after all. And you scrambled the tracker? Klein grinned. If you guarantee to upload me onto Ad Astra, I promise to wipe the entanglement. Okay. And the second thing I should know is, what makes you think Maisie will survive downloading? You managed it. Ah, but I've reviewed this probot's memories prior to my arrival. There is a history of erratic behavior, but no signs that Johnny Gleason and co. ever attained consciousness. Seems like I was the first to stick. Frankly, that doesn't surprise me at all. No wonder Klein had come to top of her class, mused Joe. Someone who could cope with being downloaded into a malfunctioning bot would doubtless savor the task of captaining the slow boat to Alpha Centauri. The Klein so desperately wanted to pursue her destiny in deep space rather than remain a fortuitous physical presence on Mars, told Joe a lot. She seemed less human than most bots, which begged the most important question of all. If I promise to re-upload you, will you ensure that Maisie downloads safely? I can try. Trying ain't good enough. Klein shrugged. Maisie and I will both be taking a huge risk, but yes, I think I can make it work for her. After briefly considering the alternative, Joe held out his hand. Klein shook it carefully. But negotiating this bargain of necessity was the easy part, Joe reflected. Assuming he could subvert the Acme link, he'd have to figure out how to accomplish a synchronized two-way personality transfer. That, he felt sure, had never been attempted before. All this with the cops closing in. Tell me, Ms. Klein, he said, have you ever ridden pillion? Klein grimaced. This bot has done a lot of things I never have and would never want to, she said, smiling primly. But I don't believe it has ever ridden a motorbike. Not a bit like Maisie, Joe said to himself as he followed Klein out of the brothel. Maisie had just begun recounting how she'd avoided the Reaper when the billboard cameras panned away from Joe. Her eyes blazed from the screen like twin death rays. Can't say I blame you for dipping your wick given where I am and all, but turning up with a probot in tow, that's just rubbing my face in it. The camera zoomed in on Klein. And damn me if it ain't a frickin' Lyra. Klein performed a curtsy. Not just any old Lyra, my dear. I believe you have history with this one. Maisie wrinkled her nose as if she just stepped on a dog turd. Joe, tell me that ain't the Tucson bot. He held up his gloved palms. Afraid so. Maisie's image blanked out. Klein grunted contemptuously. Now what? We cut her some slack. Maisie reappeared on the count of twenty, as Joe guessed she would, though he hadn't expected her to look so shamefaced. First of all, I know you've never cheated on me. I shouldn't have implied that you had. Wouldn't have been cheating anyway. Joe shrugged but said nothing. Secondly, you've never wasted my time, so you must have brought this thing here for a reason. She shot his companion a vicious stare before turning back to him, which would be... Klein butted in before Joe could answer. Don't you recognize my voice? Sure I do. Though why anyone would revoice a probot so it sounded like... She paused as if suddenly unsure of her reasoning. Then her eyes bugged. No way! She exclaimed. Just no frickin' way! Klein groaned. Why would I deceive you? 
Joe made a quelling gesture. A feud was the last thing he needed. He turned to Maisie. Now it was his turn to look shamefaced as he began his long-delayed explanation. After I got us back to the motel, I was in such a hurry to begin the upload, I didn't have time to unhook you from the Lyra. Which wasn't precisely true, but this didn't seem the moment to admit that he'd lacked the skill to disentangle Maisie without leaving her brain dead. Needless to say, the judiciary had shown no such qualms. Maisie rolled her eyes. I might have known. Joe continued. When I scanned you, I discovered that your brain had gone into spasm because one of the Lyra's Q-chips had planted a proof-of-concept virus in your implant. So when I uploaded you via your implant, the virus hitched a ride to the PLSP server. There it deployed the Reaper, which has been downloading post-lifers into this bot ever since, copying itself from one domain to another while searching for you. Doubtless each owner saw the bot throw a fit, tried to fix it, and then traded it on. He turned to Klein, who confirmed his intuition with a nod. When the cops learned of my immigration, they tagged the bot and shipped it to Mars, reasoning that it would eventually find its way to this planet's premier bot fixer. So now it's here, still waiting for the Reaper to reunite its body and your soul. Trust me, Klein sneered. You're a perfect match. Maisie ignored the barb. Sweetheart, if you seriously think I'm going to spend the rest of my life in that thing. Joe made a beseeching gesture. Honey, there's no avoiding the Reaper. Sooner or later it will download you. The billboard cameras twitched as Maisie turned to Klein. She grinned wolfishly. So why don't I just wait? Joe turned to Klein and mouthed, Make it brief. Klein nodded. My dear, it's like this. When she finished, he added, So we need her help to ensure you download Compass Mentis. She needs our help to get back to where she belongs. Maisie puffed out her cheeks and then slowly expelled her breath, a sign that he'd won her over. Okay, she said, still frowning. So how exactly are you going to make this work? Joe smiled at her, hoping to instill confidence that he scarcely felt. I'll open a covert channel to Ad Astra and configure it for duplex operation. As soon as the Reaper starts downloading you, it will trigger a simultaneous upload from my square Q-chip set, which will contain a copy of Klein. As the transfer proceeds, she will gradually fade out of the bot at the same rate your own presence builds up. Klein would also have to suppress the bot's Lyra personality, so it didn't get in Maisie's way. He turned to her and received a nod of approval. So, with a little luck... With a little luck? Maisie shook her head in dismay. I need a frickin' miracle. Klein chuckled. You and me both, my dear. But since this is the only game in town, I suggest we get on with it. Before the cops find us. Joe muttered beneath his breath while crossing his fingers. No easy task while wearing Mars gloves. Maisie gave a reluctant nod. Sighing with relief, Joe turned to Klein and made a lifting gesture with his fingers. Ready when you are, Ms. Klein. By the time Joe had configured the link to his satisfaction, his shadow stretched halfway to the canyon walls. He imagined credits draining from Maisie's account like sand in an egg timer. Entangling the neural states contained in the probot's Q-chips 
with his own set, had taken much longer than expected, but now, finally, he held a copy of Klein. When he called Maisie, she looked harried, as if she'd spent the entire time evading the Reaper. Are you ready yet? I believe so. He turned to Klein, who nodded. Maisie should experience a soft landing. Then let's get on with it, the women chorused. Joe tapped an icon on his pad, opening the channel. Moments later, Maisie jerked like someone had poked a gun in her back. It's here, she shrieked. The Reapers found me. Joe glanced at his pad to confirm that Klein's download had begun. Try to stay calm, honey. Get me out of here, damn it. This involuntary echo of Klein made Joe shiver. He glanced at the bot. With its eyes closed, it looked asleep. Turning back to Maisie, he said, Let it take you, honey. I love... Maisie's voice cut out. A moment later, her face exploded. Joe watched open-mouthed as multicolored fractals branched and spiraled, filling the billboard with dizzyingly complex patterns. The effect was enthralling, hypnotic, spellbinding. Joe snapped out of his trance just as the visual chaos coalesced into the Acme logo. On checking his pad, he saw that thirty minutes had elapsed. Before he could examine the transfer log, an unfamiliar female face flashed up on the billboard. Her electric blue hair, ice-white complexion, and coal-black eyes made a striking impression. Are you... The woman nodded. Yes, I'm Sarah Klein. Joe punched the air. Sarah frowned at him like he was a misbehaving child. I've got to go, she said. Thanks for everything. Wait a moment, what about... Klein's image vanished, which just left Maisie, or so Joe fervently hoped. He struggled to remain calm while he deep-scanned the bot, which stood before him silent and unmoving. The diagnostics showed green, but they had all along. He commenced the reboot. He watched closely while the machine twitched into life. Eventually, he could stand the suspense no longer. Maisie? The probot's chin tipped up a fraction. A moist-looking tongue insinuated itself between crimson lips. Eyelids flickered, then lifted. For a heart-thumping moment, Joe dared to hope. But the look he received was pure probot. Alira's pouting come on. Feeling sick at heart, he turned away. Maisie's download had failed. He was fiddling with his helmet's release latch when a neutral-sounding voice came over his headphones. Maisie says, Hello. Joe stared at the bot in disbelief. Trust Maisie to make a joke out of her resurrection. Trembling with relief, he reached out to embrace her. Never mind that she didn't look or feel like the real thing. He'd got his beloved back. Welcome to the land of the living, honey. Maisie says, she is not sure this is living. He grinned. Okay, honey, you can quit fooling now. The shake of the head was slow as clockwork. Maisie says, she is not fooling. Joe fell to his knees and wept. Oblivious to the chill seeping into his bones, Joe sat on a boulder facing the billboard. Sarah Klein had just finished greeting her fellow post-lifers on the Ad Astra campus lawn. A tumultuous cheer erupted as she rose, oh so gently, into the virtual sky. Soon, Klein would be piloting a starship, carrying the seed of humanity to new worlds, unreachable by mere humans. Good luck to her, thought Joe. 
A robotic hand squeezed his hip. Joe flinched. Maisie says, you did your best. Joe gave a mournful sigh. His best hadn't been good enough. Dazzled by the Reaper's visual pyrotechnics, he had failed to notice Acme downgrade Maisie to third as the transfer pushed her account below the critical threshold. Better to have left his beloved in purgatory, he mused, than bring her back in this debased form. A robotic arm cuddled his shoulders. Maisie says, It is better than being dead. He glanced at her and sighed. Maybe a skin job would help. Maisie says, Black might work. Hearing a snatch of typical Maisie humor lifted his spirits, but when he looked into her eyes, searching for further signs, she broke away. Something had caught her attention. She pointed over his shoulder. Maisie says, Look at that. Turning as directed, he glimpsed a brilliant dot moving across the twilight sky. Must be Klein, he reasoned, outward bound for Alpha Centauri or wherever. He glanced at Maisie. You okay about Klein? A grunt came over his headphones. Hmph. Klein's a bitch, but she does have the right stuff. Joe stared at Maisie, his mouth opening and closing without making a sound, while laughter filled his helmet. He smacked his gloved fist into palm. You lying, deceiving daughter of a... Maisie held out her arms. Joe stepped forward, expecting a hug. Instead, he received a two-handed slap around the helmet that made his ears ring. That's for all the frickin' downgrades, you useless foul-up of a partner. Brought you back, though, didn't I? Maisie nodded, a little reluctantly, maybe, but he needed no other forgiveness. They embraced tenderly. When he finally let go, she walked over to his Norton. So, sweetheart, is there room for two on this clapped-out machine of yours? Joe grinned. Yes, but you'll have to earn your keep. Maisie gave him a look that would have slain a lesser man. It's bad enough being hosted by a probot, but if you think I'm going on the game, think again. Joe gave a rueful chuckle. <laughs> I swear I never thought of pimping you around Mars. Which leaves Jackin. Maisie's voice crackled with excitement. It'll be like old times. Joe shook his head. Not exactly, honey. Watching Klein's ascent had given him an idea. What do you mean? Maisie sounded unimpressed. I reckon we can use bots to salvage something much more valuable than metal. He grasped his partner's hands. How many post-lifers make rapture? Fewer than one in a thousand. Why? Well, as far as I know, the Reaper is still present on Ad Astra, though hopefully dormant after completing its quest. He took a deep breath before continuing. If we can reprogram it to download post-lifers into other bots, we'll make ourselves a fortune. Of course, we'll need help from the virus's creator who's probably still on Earth, or maybe not. But anyway, Klein reckoned your host's memories are fully accessible. So if you dig deep enough, you should find some info on... Maisie shrieked. Stop yammering! Joe kept quiet while Maisie did the math. On the count of twelve, she gave him a look that suggested he'd have to break the habit of a lifetime and sleep with a probot. Oh, you clever, clever man, she said, clapping her hands.
We can call ourselves the Resurrection Gang. In his mind's eye, Joe saw police drones flitting over a desert landscape, pursuing him and Maisie from one jacking to the next, but never quite catching up. Maisie's warning growl interrupted his fantasy. Sweetheart, did Klein disable the tracker? Glancing along the road back to Midway, Joe saw lights moving in the distance. Might be miners, might be cops. It was hard to tell. Either way, it was time for the resurrection gang to burn rubber. Joe fired up the Norton. Maisie clambered onto the pillion and hugged him tight. With her love to make him bold, Joe felt like he could take on the world, Mars, Earth, or wherever. It didn't matter to him. Get on with it, Maisie yelled. Soundtracked by Joe's favorite rock song, they rode off into the night. There you go. Big thank you. Big thank you to Vaughan and to Nicole. Thank you so much. Fantastic. I hope you enjoyed that story. Next up is the end of the month, and that only means one thing. It's the fantastic Mr. J.J. Campanella, Jim Squire. Greetings and matriculations, my uproariously monopelagial listeners. And welcome to this February 2016 Science News Update. I'm your host for this sub-xenophagian mockery of a science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. Hey, hello, how are you? How you doing? I'm okay. Our first story of the night is from a listener. Peter Hogberg. 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 Sorry, Peter. I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce that umlaut over your, the O in your name. Anyway, Peter was very excited about this story. I think he likes the idea of taking a method from the hard sciences and reapplying it to the rather soft area of literature history. And I have to admit that I think it's rather cool, too, because the authors of this paper actually use similar methods that I use when I do uh, analyses of DNA sequences and try to determine how similar or dissimilar they are to each other. It allows my lab to tell what species are related to what and how they may have evolved and things like that. Well, this new study, which was published in the Royal Society Open Science Journal, employed the same phylogenetic methods that I and my colleagues use to investigate the relationships between population, histories, and cultural phenomena, such as languages, marriage practices, political institutions, material culture, and music. The study was employed more specifically by anthropologist Dr. Jamie Tarani of Durham University to look at famous folktales and determine their origins around the world and just how old they were. Tehrani says that Jack and the Beanstalk was rooted in a group of stories classified as the boy who stole ogre's treasure and can be traced back to when Eastern and Western Indo-European languages split more than 5,000 years ago. Additionally, his analysis shows that Beauty and the Beast and Rumpelstiltskin are about 4,000 years old. And a folktale called The Smith and the Devil about a blacksmith selling his soul in a pact with the devil in order to gain supernatural abilities was estimated to go back 6,000 years all the way to the Bronze Age. Now, some anthropologists disagree with this, and they say that the job of Smith was not even recognizable back then and didn't exist, so how could the story have been uh, written or told in that manner? Tehrani says, quote, We find it pretty remarkable these stories have survived without being written down. 
The stories were told before even English, French, and Italian existed. They were probably told in an extinct Indo-European language, unquote. In the 19th century, the Brothers Grimm believed that many of the fairy tales they popularized, including Red Riding Hood, Cinderella, Hansel and Gretel, and Snow White, were rooted in a shared cultural history dating back to the birth of the Indo-European language family. Tehrani says he doesn't believe scholars who say that some Brother Grimm stories were much younger and passed into oral tradition, having first been written down by writers from the 16th and 17th centuries. Quote, some of these stories go back much further than the earliest literary record, and indeed further back than classical mythology. Some versions of these stories appear in Latin and Greek texts, but our findings suggest that they are even older than that, unquote. I find this so amazing that Tehrani is really talking about the evolution of stories when all I ever look at are plants and animals. Okay, thank you. Next story. Can humans have superpowers that have not been created by Stan Lee? Well, the answer is yes. I came across this story in the journal Biotechniques, and I thought it was so cool because I never really think of any humans as having superpowers in reality. I mean, we live in a pretty prosaic world in a lot of ways. But here is an interesting list of quote-unquote superpowers. Now, you may not think some of these are superpowers, but they're still kind of neat. Number one, unbreakable bones. Do you remember the M. Night Shyamalan movie? The movie was unbreakable. The entire premise of that movie is that there are people at both ends of the bell curve who are both incredibly delicate, as the Mr. Glass character of Samuel L. Jackson was, and at the other end of the spectrum, incredibly resilient, as the Bruce Willis character was. This does happen in real life, believe it or not. Thanks to a genetic mutation called sclerosteosis, some people, some humans, are born with bones that are several times denser than the average human. In theory, people with this unbreakable bone mutation could walk away from car accidents unscathed. At first, the thought of unbreakable bones seems like a blessing, right? But excessive bone growth can cause pressure on cranial nerves, on the brain, and it can sometimes even lead to hearing loss. On the bright side, Doctors are trying to use the thick bone mutation to find a cure for osteoporosis and other diseases that cause brittle bones, the opposite. Not like Mr. Glass. Number two, the low cholesterol mutation. Now, I, I tell my biology classes what we put into our bodies affects our cholesterol levels, but genetics plays a huge role in the amount of cholesterol we have as well. Some people have a gene mutation, PCSK9 that causes a deficiency in the production of a protein called cholesterol ester transfer protein, CETP. CETP deficiency is linked with higher levels of good HDL cholesterol, which help people with the mutation maintain low cholesterol levels. So far, scientists have only found this rare mutation in a handful of African Americans, but the ones who benefit from it have a 90% reduced risk of heart disease. Number three, the inability to feel pain. Okay, so you don't think low cholesterol is a superpower? Remember painkiller Jane from the TV and comic? Jane had amazing healing powers like Wolverine. But actually, I guess her name was ironic and she felt her injuries. Imagine if you could be injured and not feel pain at all, though. Imagine being able to put your hand on a burning stove or prick yourself with a needle without feeling any pain whatsoever. 
Some people have a rare genetic mutation that makes them able to do, well, exactly that. It's called congenital analgesia. Just like the unbreakable bone mutation, it seems like the inability to feel pain would be pretty awesome. However, the condition is extremely dangerous since people with a disorder could have serious injuries, particularly internal ones, and have no idea. The pharmaceutical industry is also attempting to capitalize on this genetic mutation with the hopes of creating an entirely new class of painkillers that would be non-addictive. As usual, it'll be years of trials before any of those drugs are released, however. Number four, the super sleeper mutation. Now imagine having extra time than most humans have to do work or study or read or watch movies or whatever. Is that a superpower? Sort of. While most of us need about eight hours of sleep every night, some people with the HDEC2 gene can feel totally energized on just four hours of sleep a night. Scientists call them short sleepers and have been working to discover exactly what predisposes people to need half the amount of sleep as the rest of us. Imagine how much more you could get done in a day if you had four hours extra. Number five, the HIV-resistant mutation. Is disease resistance a superpower? Maybe when it comes to deadly diseases. Some people have a genetic mutation that disables their copy of the CCR5 protein. This is the protein that's used by HIV virus as a doorway into human cells. If a person lacks the receptor CCR5, it's extremely unlikely they'll become infected with the disease because HIV will have a reduced chance of latching onto their cells. Some homozygotes even have two copies of the gene mutation making them the most resistant to HIV of all. Only about 1% of Caucasians have two copies of that mutation, and it's even more rare in other ethnicities. Number six, malarial resistance. Unfortunately, this superpower comes in the form of a blood disorder called sickle cell disease. People with two copies of the sickle hemoglobin gene suffer from a reduced ability to transport oxygen through their body. However, people with one copy of the gene, the mutant gene, and one normal hemoglobin gene lead healthy lives, and their condition renders them 10 times less likely to catch a serious case of malaria. Hopefully, scientists will be able to use information from the malarial resistance variation to produce more innovative malarial treatments in the future. Finally, number seven, the super sprinter variant. How would you like to be a super athlete, like Batman? All of us have a gene called ACTN3, but variants of the gene lead to different abilities in sports. Certain variants help the body make a protein called alpha-actinin-3, which controls fast-twitch muscle fibers and the flexing of the muscles during weightlifting or sprinting or any athletic event. It also controls the cells responsible for speedy muscle tensing. In 2008, Geneticists who were studying power athletes and elite sprinters found that very few of them had two defective ACTN3 copies, whereas nearly 20% of the general population inherited two defective copies, rendering these individuals completely deficient in the speedy muscle contracting protein. This 2008 study is what led to ACTN3 being called the sports gene, and it could explain why some people are super athletes compared to those with no athletic ability. Uh, 
like yours truly here. If you also need two normal copies of ACTN3 to chew gum and walk at the same time, then I am probably a double recessive mutant. Well, what are you going to do? Okay, here's the big story right out of the news. See, I don't always ignore big stories. I tell them to you sometimes. Gravity waves have finally been detected for the first time since Albert Einstein predicted them a hundred years ago. That was a year after his formulation of general relativity. Yes, actual gravity waves, which every SF aficionado has probably read for the last hundred years or so. Their existence was demonstrated indirectly and mathematically maybe 25 or 30 years ago, but it has taken all that time since to show that they are actually out there. Why? Well, two reasons. First, you need equipment sensitive enough to actually detect something which you would expect to be a massive alteration in space-time, but is not necessarily. And B, you need a massive gravity event to be detected. Now remember that it's much easier to see the result of a boulder being dropped into a pond as opposed to a pebble. That's kind of what we're talking about here. The paper was published in January in Physical Review Letters, and I'll be honest, and I have no idea who the main author was. There were at least a 100 authors on this paper from all over the world. But the work was done at Caltech's Laser Inferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, or LIGO. The detection occurred on September 14, 2015, four days before the official start of observations for the newly upgraded observatory. They actually made the discovery while they were calibrating the upgraded detector. The burst of waves arrived on Earth after two black holes, one about 36 times the mass of the sun and the other about 29 times bigger, spiraled toward each other and coalesced into one giant black hole. Einstein's general relativity maintains that those black holes merged because their mass indented the fabric of space-time. And as the black holes drew near each other, they deepened the pit in space-time, also churning up the fabric of space-time and emitting gravitational radiation. Yes, gravity waves. Unlike more familiar kinds of radiation, like light and radio and microwaves that we're familiar with, my understanding is that gravitational ripples don't travel through space. They are vibrations in space-time itself, propagating outward in all directions at the speed of light. This is seriously cool stuff. I guess that nearly every accelerating object in the universe generates gravity waves. I produced them this morning when I drove onto the Garden State Parkway with my Toyota. Yes, they are feeble and undetectable, but gravity waves nonetheless. LIGO is fine-tuned to home in on detectable waves emitted from regions where a lot of mass is packed into small spaces and moving very fast. These black holes certainly qualify. Their tremendous mass was packed into spheres about 150 kilometers in diameter. By the time the black holes experienced that final plunge into each other, they were circling each other at about half the speed of light. The gravity waves emitted by those black holes during their last fractions of a second of independence encountered the LIGO detectors. Now, there are two of these detectors that work in unison. One is in Hanford, Washington, and the other is in Livingston, Louisiana. They each consist of a powerful laser that splits into two four-kilometer-long beams. When space-time is calm, the beams recombine at the junction and cancel each other out. The trough of one beam 
completely negates the crest of the second beam. But when there's a gravitational disturbance, especially from this black hole pair, it distorted space-time. It slightly squeezed one arm of the detector while stretching the other. When the beams recombined, the light no longer matched up perfectly. The detector sensed that crest missed the trough by the tiniest of amounts. It was about the thousandth of a diameter of a proton. The LIGO facility registered the signal just 7 milliseconds apart, indicating a light speed pulse from deep space rather than a slower moving vibration from an underground earthquake or maybe a big truck rumbling along the highway. Why is this so important? Well, first, it's remarkable that this happened on the 100th anniversary when Einstein predicted gravity waves. But it also helped seal the deal in the Nobel Prize that was handed out in 1993 in physics to doctors Russell Hulse and Joseph Taylor Jr. for deducing gravity wave emission based on the motion of a neutron star and its closely orbiting companion. Now advanced LIGO has produced the first direct measurement. According to the LIGO Laboratory Executive Director, Dr. David Wrights, quote, Gravity waves will allow us to look at the universe not just with light, but with gravity. Gravitational waves can expose the gory details of black holes and other extreme phenomenon that can't be obtained with traditional telescopes. With this discovery, the era of gravitational wave astronomy has begun, unquote. So as they say in those car commercials, this changes everything. While we're on the subject of strange space objects, I have to report this story. Billions of light years away, billions and billions, there's a giant ball of hot gas that is brighter than hundreds of billions of suns. It's hard to imagine something so bright. What is it? Astronomers are not really sure, but they have a couple of theories. Dr. Christoph Stanek, professor of astronomy at Ohio State, and his research group have reported this incredible object in the journal Science last month. Stanek thinks it might be a very rare type of supernova called a magnetar, one so powerful it pushes the energy limits of physics, or in other words, it's the most powerful supernova ever seen. Stanek says, quote, This object is so luminous, we are having a real difficult time finding a way to describe it. If it is really a magnetar, it's as if nature took everything we know about magnetars and turned it up to 11, unquote. The object was first spotted by the All-Sky Automated Survey of Supernova, ASASSN, or ASSASSN as they call the project. It's a small network of telescopes used to detect bright objects in the universe. Although this object is ridiculously bright, it still can't be seen by the naked eye because it's 3.8 billion light years away. Assassins, since it began in 2014, has discovered nearly 250 supernova. However, this one stands out because of its sheer magnitude. It's 200 times more powerful than the average supernova, 570 billion times brighter than our sun, and 20 times brighter than all the stars in the Milky Way combined. Sonic says that, quote, we have to ask, how is this even possible? It takes a lot of energy to shine that bright, and that energy has to come from somewhere, unquote. How bizarre is a magnetar? Well, to shine as bright as it does, this new super supernova, 
would have to spin at least a thousand times a second and convert all that rotational energy to light with pretty much 100% efficiency. That would make it the most extreme example of a magnetar that is physically possible. Stanek says that if all that is true, we may never see anything in the universe brighter than this magnetar. Stanek reports that over the next few months, the Hubble Space Telescope will try to better characterize this mystery by giving astronomers time to see the host galaxy surrounding this object. They may find that the object lies in the very center of a large galaxy, meaning that it might not be a magnetar at all, and the gas around it is actually evidence of a massive, supermassive black hole. If that's the case, then the bright light could be explained by a completely new kind of event. It would be something that has never, ever been seen before at the center of a galaxy. Whether it's a magnetar, a supermassive black hole, or something else entirely, the results are probably going to lead to new thinking about how objects are formed in the universe. Well, the next story is kind of an update on one that I've discussed previously, having to do with humans and Neanderthals interbreeding thousands of years ago. Did this interbreeding have any effect on modern humans? Well, yeah, it did. When does breeding outside your own species not have an effect? Dr. John Capra of Vanderbilt University and his team reported this month in the journal Science that not only is Neanderthal DNA still with us, it affects us genetically. People of Eurasian origin are, genetically speaking, between 1% and 4% Neanderthal. And Capra's new research shows how this archaic DNA in their genomes may be impacting their health. The study utilized the electronic medical records and associated DNA data of more than 28,000 individuals to show that Neanderthal DNA had small but significant effects on the risks of developing, among other things, depression, skin lesions, and excessive blood clotting. Sequencing of Neanderthal genomes, isolated from fragments of bone, has revealed that modern humans contain remnants of Neanderthal DNA, a result of interbreeding between the two subspecies, as I have reported in previous podcasts. So, even though this DNA has been detected and there's an abundance of Neanderthal alleles, it's a little unclear whether those alleles have actual functional phenotypic effects on humans, and what they are. Capra devised an ingenious way to investigate such functional effects on a genome-wide scale. He states, quote, We realized we had a great opportunity to answer these questions using large databases of anonymous versions of patient electronic health records linked to their genetic information. This is the first study that systematically goes through and uses the knowledge we have about genetic variations in humans to ask how much has integration of DNA from Neanderthals affected observable traits in humans, unquote. Within Neanderthal DNA found in humans, the researchers focused on the most common genetic variants and asked whether those variants were associated with any of the medical traits listed for the 28,000 patients. The researchers discovered associations with depression, mood disorders, and a particular type of skin lesion caused by sun exposure. Additionally, they picked out associations tied to tobacco use, urinary problems, and blood hypercoagulation. Capra says, quote, The associations we observed are really, really small. While the links between Neanderthal alleles and certain human phenotypes were statistically significant, they only represented a tiny percentage of the risk. 1 to 2% in the case of depression, for example. 
You may ask why humans have not lost those Neanderthal traits. Remember that many genetic variants, regardless of evolutionary origin and temporal context, are beneficial in some respects, but detrimental in others. For example, while hypercoagulation may increase a person's thrombosis risk, coagulation is an early innate immune response that protects against injury and infection. As Neanderthals colonized new territories and were exposed to new pathogens, having a souped-up version of this response may therefore have been a favorable defense mechanism, unquote. Capra's team also found that Neanderthal-linked neurological and psychiatric traits were both overrepresented. This suggested to the researchers that the brains of modern humans have been particularly influenced by Neanderthal DNA. Capra says, quote, If you had the hypothesis that Neanderthals died out because they were stupid, then you have to explain why their genes are here doing all this stuff in our brains, unquote. He concludes with this. The takeaway from our work is that these genes that we have from these ancient people have effects on our phenotypes, and that's pretty cool. They are not just shadows that are not doing anything. They are actually participating in our biology, unquote. Okay, last story of the night. Sorry, but I have to report another mysterious astronomy story. I guess this is a big month for astro stuff. This one is going to make SF fans here a little bit nuts. Okay. Dr. Tabitha Boyajian of Yale has just published a paper in the journal Monthly Notices of the Royal Astronomical Society that tried to explain some mysterious observations on a star about 1,500 light-years away from us. The Kepler Space Telescope has unveiled thousands of exoplanets by tracking their shadows across the bright surfaces of their host stars. And every time a planet passes or transits in front of its star, it slightly dims the star's luminosity for a few hours or maybe days at most, and at regular periods that match the planet's orbit. But one star's eccentric shine has bewildered astronomers and inflame the imaginations of those in search of extraterrestrial intelligence. The star is KIC 8462852, and it sits between the constellations Cygnus and Lyra, about 1,500 light years away. Like many other stars, its brightness frequently darkens from shadows cast by transiting objects. However, the shadows on KIC create an offbeat light pattern, quite unlike any other. In the last four years of observing KIC, Boyajian and her colleagues have found that the star experienced two small dimming events in 2009, a week-long 15% dimming in 2011, and then a series of dimmings in 2013. At one point, it reached a depth of 22%. Even a planet as big as Jupiter would only be able to darken its host star by 2% at most. Boyajian says that the transits can't be caused by orbiting planets because they were too erratic, too dark. Instead, the pattern seems to indicate a massive irregular shape, most likely a bevy of objects. This shape could have been a protoplanetary disk. That's the, the cloud of debris that surrounds young stars before they settle down into a stable system of planets and asteroids. But the star is missing the infrared emissions that characterize uh, a disk like that. 
The lack of infrared light also eliminates the possibility that the shape is a cloud of debris left over from some energetic collision between two planets or planets and moons or whatever. And lastly, the object must be a relatively new development or it would have met its scorching doom at the hands of the star's gravity by now. So what could it be? Boyajian suggests it's a cluster of comets as the most plausible scenario. If another star recently passed close enough to KIC, it would have brought along comets that are slowly disintegrating as they orbit the star, which would explain the highly aberrant dimming patterns. But this explanation has problems too. It's unlikely that this event happened in the relatively short time span that would allow us to observe these dimmings right now. It's also hard to imagine mere comets being able to block out a full 22% of a star's light, even a huge cloud of them. Of course, the researchers at the Center for the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence have other ideas. They've suggested that you would expect an alien civilization to build massive structures around a star that would have that kind of dimming on it. If the giant planet-sized structures cast such dark shadows on KIC are truly some sort of alien architecture, then perhaps they're designed to capture solar energy. If that's the case, they would emit powerful radio waves detectable from Earth, say the SETI people. SETI says if they do pick up radio waves, they can progress to the very large array in New Mexico to determine whether the radio waves are coming from a technological source. SETI is trying to get radio telescope time to examine KIC with a microscope, so to speak. If the SETI proposal is approved, the first observations may start in the next several weeks with a follow-up plan for fall of 2016. The SETI spokesman, Dr. James Wright of Penn State, says, quote, Even if we don't end up finding aliens this time around, this discovery presents the most compelling concept of an alien civilization we have ever encountered. And right now, there is nothing to suggest that the alien structure hypothesis is false. Unquote. Frankly, whether it's aliens or not, I don't care. But this is why I got into science. KIC 8462852 exemplifies the most exhilarating aspect of science, particularly of the cosmic variety that I find intriguing, that we really have no idea what's out there. And everything, anything may be possible. Well, that's all for me for now. As always, take care. Don't stare at magnetars too long or you'll burn up. Blame your tobacco addiction on your Neanderthal forebears. Keep watching the skies. And I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. There you go, Jim. What can I say? Thank you so much. Thank you, honestly. Thank you so much. So that is today's show. I hope you've enjoyed it. It's just, you know what I mean? Just what's out there, the possibilities. It's just fantastic. Thank you so much, everyone who's kind of helped put the show together. And, you know, for, for all you out there who've kind of liked it, you know what I mean? Can listen to it. I hope you enjoy it. it. Means a lot that you listen. Thank you so much. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? 
Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Station Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.